This episode's part of a special feature series on New York City and is a co-presentation with the Museum of the City of New York with generous support from the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Find us at yourhometown.org or on your favorite podcast app. Well, the one who made the most impression on me was Sister Regina. She was a really old-fashioned kind of uh, tough Irish woman. She taught the fourth grade. She used to say to me, Johansson, you tantalizing article, yeah. <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> she used to tell What us, were you doing that, that listed that? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Just being me, I guess. But. Where did you grow up is a question we're all asked a lot. But the answer is never as simple as a place on a map, is it? It's about the kid inside of us what happened to them there before we met the world and the world met us i'm kevin burke and this is your hometown My guest is a tantalizing article and isn't one to be pinned down. In the late 80s, he had everyone I knew feeling hot, hot, hot. Every party I went to involved doing the limbo to this song. And from the video, I could see he was this lounge singer with a pompadour hairstyle and tuxedo. His name was Buster Poindexter, and he was a riot. A year later, this same guy showed up as the ghost of Christmas past in Bill Murray's Scrooged, driving a checkered cab and chomping on a cigar with a fiendish gravelly howl. It was only much later that I realized that before all of this, This same guy had been the glammed-up lead singer of the New York Dolls, a mythic rock band of the downtown scene of the 1970s. Hard rock, punk rock, glam rock, heavy metal. The Dolls sit atop a lot of family trees. And this guy was their front man. His real name is David Johansson, and with the dolls, he exploded onto the scene during the sexual revolution with this theatrical flair and brash way of stomping around on stage, roaring in makeup, sometimes with high heels, sometimes in platform shoes, sometimes in spandex, sometimes in dresses. There's a reason people are still talking about the dolls. Now, a couple years ago, I saw David in person, performing at a private club in Midtown, and he changed again. Now he was a folky blues singer in a pair of jeans with an acoustic vibe, cool in his casualness, and sounding something like this. You think I'm a whore, but I got a... Whoa. 
Whatever the look, whatever the form, whatever character he's playing, when David walks into a room, from a dive bar on the Bowery to the swanky cafe at the Carlisle Hotel, he owns it, and a scene soon gathers around him. Now, my interest only deepened when I learned that he didn't come from any of these worlds, but that he'd grown up across New York Harbor in the borough of Staten Island in the 1950s and 60s, a kid riding bikes and going to Catholic school. I wondered which of his incarnations were costumes. Who was the real David, and where was the boy inside of him? And how did he grow up to become one of the all-time frontmen of music, and an artist who keeps changing the game, not by degrees, but by solar systems? That's the puzzle I wanted to piece together, the origin story of a true original. See what you think. These interviews are such an adventure, both to do and I hope to listen to. David and I began our conversation with a quick tour of the house his mother's father built on the north shore of Staten Island in the neighborhood of West Brighton on Beeman Avenue. It was there that David and his family moved from the projects when he was a kid. What was it like there, I asked him. I can remember, you know, when I was a little kid, uh, walking down the street from the bus stop or whatever, and people would greet me on, from their porch. Oh, there's David. Oh, hi, David. You know, I was kind of, I was very popular in the, in the neighborhood. I was, I kind of like, it was, uh, I was very nice. You know, I was smiling. I was funny, you know. If you could take us on a tour of that home on, on Beeman Avenue, you know, tell us about it and where you slept and what a the house was like. A tour of the home. My mother's father built the house, yeah. And uh, when they, <clears throat> when her mother passed away, I think my parents bought the house from my mother's two sisters, you know, like uh, two-thirds of the house or something, at a very nice price. And so... Uh, we had a rapidly expanding family, so we moved there. I always say it was like Archie Bunker's house. And you do when you want There was three bedrooms. So ultimately three boys slept in one room and three girls slept in the other room, and my parents had their room. And with your brothers, how did you divide that up? We had uh, bunk beds, and like a day bed, you know, like a single bed. Mm -hmm. And uh, my older brother took the day bed. I guess, you know, he probably didn't want to be in a bunk bed with two uh, numbskull brothers. <laughs> and uh, I, I took the bottom of the bunk and built like a room out of it. You know, I put like curtains on it and I remember I had uh, a map of uh, the solar system up above my head and uh, my younger brother, who's like, you know, two years younger than mm -hmm. me, maybe less, he was on the top bunk. He used to fall out once in a while. 
roll out. <laughs> we got along fairly well. I mean, you know, my older brother and I, we used to kind of fight like Cain and Abel, but uh, he had a record player and he had a lot of records. And uh, when he wasn't around, I used to play his records. Um, you know, if there was a record of his that I really liked, I mean, I was five years younger than him. So, uh, and I wanted it. He would like always make some kind of uh, deal that uh, I got the short end of. Like I would have to give him like you know, like a pen knife for some record that probably cost twenty nine cents or something. <laughs> so the pen knife probably cost a dollar. So then I would start thinking about it and kind of like stewing about it, and then. Uh, when no one was home but the two of us, sometimes we would try to settle our differences, to put it mildly, and ultimately my mother uh, made a rule that we weren't allowed to be in the house alone together at the same time. Like One of us had to leave. I, don't, I never carried any of this uh, animosity be, beyond being like 15 or something. As a kid, were you outside a lot of the time? Oh, I, I would be outside. You know, I was fairly feral. You know, they didn't really uh, <clears throat> have the kids so organized, you know. Not like they do these days, you know. They just kind of turn you out and tell you to come home when the streetlights come on, essentially. Mm-hmm. So um, I can remember when I was in the projects, for example, at... Uh, Toad Hill Projects. I would have like a new best friend every day, you know, because there was so many kids there. Because it was like, you know, post-war kind of housing, right? Mm -hmm. We would go on these like great, I mean, to me, they seemed like Ulysses, these epic adventures, you know. Um, There was woods around there. We would go into the woods and discover things. You know, I used to have a friend on the next block who had uh, a paper route and uh, it would go through uh, this place where years back that it was like the neighborhood of the freed slaves who came on the Underground Railroad. And it was really like an old-fashioned kind of neighborhood. That was just part of his route. Okay. They had, you know, their own funeral home and everything. It was really great. I remember there was a creek, and if you went to drink out of it, they said, you'll get polio. And uh, we would go by the creek that ran by the dye works and see what color dye they were making that day because the creek would be like orange or blue or whatever. Be a lot of... It was, you know, adventures, in, especially in, in like a toxic waste site. So, did a lot of that. Then, uh, you know, in the summer we would go s- and swim at the Kilvan Cull, which was really 
it's really toxic. I used to go in there because, you know, if you didn't jump off the pilings into it, you would be like a chicken. So you had to dive in. And what was the, would you say, was the most dangerous spot you were ever in as a kid? You know, I used to kind of like get in dangerous situations very often, you know. So, you know, like you would, the train went by there, we would jump on the train while it was moving, ride it to the neck to Port Richmond. Or, uh, I uh, got a bicycle for my birthday, I think, when I was 11. And we used to go far afield, me and my friends, you know, whoever my friends were that day. But we would, you know, f go out to South Beach. For, there used to be an amusement park out there. And it was pretty far for a little kid, you know. One of our favorites was to uh, take the Brooklyn Ferry and then ride under the BQE and over the Brooklyn Bridge and come back on the Manhattan Ferry. And uh, as we would go through the neighborhoods under the BQE, kids would just like start charging out of the streets and throwing stuff at us. And it was crazy. And we used to like really go fast, like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> Who the hell are these kids? <laughs> Where we came from, we weren't really territorial. If somebody came through the neighborhood, we would be more like, oh, this is you know, fascinating or whatever, right? But those kids, they would like, get out of here. <laughs> How old were you when your parents started letting you riot without them? Oh, they didn't know about these adventures. I mean, they used to hear about them. Oh, my mother would say, "My, you know, so-and-so saw you in South Beach. And I would be like, uh, you sure they thought what these days? You sure it was me? So, no, I, I, these, these adventures weren't sanctioned, but we didn't really have that kind of relationship where you kind of like give an itinerary to your parents uh, in, in the morning or something. And I think, you know, probably... Uh, when I wasn't around, things were probably more peaceful anyway. Were you the loud one in the house? I don't know what I... I was just always kind of uh, breaking these imaginary rules that I wasn't really... that I didn't know about. And were your parents strict with you? Were they strict? Yeah. In other words, when you talk about imaginary <laughs> rules, like what, what's... Well, my, my father was strict, yeah. But I don't know if he was uh, actually strict or if he was just going through the motions. But, you know, he, uh, he's from uh, Europe, you know, so. And what, did you, what were the kinds of things that you would do that, get a, that would trigger that kind of reaction from him? Like, what, what got in his nerves oh, most? Smoking, uh, drinking, uh, not going to school. And you broke all three of those? Oh, I mean, I could go on and on, but, you know, just... He was just trying to, I guess, you know, keep me out of jail.
know that your mother worked as a librarian. In fact, your parents met in a bookstore. I, I saw your father in the 1940 census. He was listed as a bookman at a bookstore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so given that connection between the two of them, were, were books and reading important in your, in your house? Yeah, sure. And you know, the, my father used to go to the library on whatever, like Monday night or whatever evening and get like 10 books and bring them back the next week and get a bunch more. Yeah, so. And did your mom work at the local branch? Where was she working as, as a librarian? At the College of Staten Island. My mother would sometimes pick out a book for me to encourage me to read, you know, when I was really young. I, I, I gather that you only had one grandparent who was really alive when you were coming of age, other than we mentioned... My father's mother. Yeah, Marie. It's like, did you, did yeah. you know her? And, and yeah. Wh- where was she in your life? She was great. She was great. Uh, I mean, you know, my father used to go visit his mother every Sunday for like an hour, right? wasn't far from our, from where we lived, but I used to go with him a lot. And she used to have uh, parties. And we, used to go, we used to go there on Christmas Eve and have all kinds of fish and stuff. All my father's brothers and sis, his sister and mm-hmm. cousins would be there. And your father, Gunvald, reading about him, he grew up on Orange Avenue and... He did. He yeah. know a lot about my family. Yeah, and, and after the war, he goes from working in, as a bookman, as I mentioned, to working in insurance, as an insurance sales rep. Yeah. And I was going to ask you what you remember about his working life and what impression it made on you seeing him work in I insurance. used to say to me, don't ever sell insurance, whatever you do. But, uh, you know, when he was a young man, he sang, you know, semi-professionally. But uh, he was, you know, a very good classical singer. And uh, over the years, I met people who, like, really loved the way he sang and encouraged him. Can you still hear his voice in your head? Yeah, yeah. You know, he he sang, uh, he knew all the operas. He sang... uh, Gilbert and Sullivan and the show, in shows and stuff like that. And where did that come from in him? Because I know I mean, he was Norwegian. His father was a carpenter in the shipyards. So where did he get that from? Tell me about his father. No, um, <laughs> I said, oh, yeah. oh, was he? Good stuff. Um, yeah. Where well, did he get that from? Yeah, I'm just thinking. I guess, you're, you know, he was in school, uh-huh. high school, Port Richmond High School. And... Uh, did some singing there, you know. I guess he kind of like stood out as somebody who could go the distance as far as his voice was concerned. And he was very handsome. You know, he used to have this big radio, like a big square wooden radio. With, I think it had a record player on the top, but it, it was a nice sounding radio. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we were working outside the house, he would put it in the window on you know, Saturday afternoon and wear his uh, old army fatigues and uh, I would be holding the ladder and he'd be up there singing like along with the Saturday afternoon opera, you know, from the Met. My friends would walk by and go like, 
and I go, <laughs> shrug your shoulders. It was just like, yeah, we didn't speak out loud because. Uh, but did he seem happy when he's doing that? Yeah. Was your, your father was in a different place. Yeah, he was happy. Versus seeing him work during the week in insurance, you're saying he's like, don't do this. Did yeah, the, he didn't. He didn't care for that job so much, you know. But you know, he had a family to support. More, my mother had a lot of kids, and you know, he needed a gig to keep the keep the uh, home fires burning, so to speak. And did he still perform locally when you were a kid? Or is it just something he did privately no, at home? But you know what he did? He, he used to earn a little extra money. He used to know uh, a lot of the different liturgies. And he would go around on uh, Sunday mornings and do a couple of different uh, services from the choir loft and uh, make a couple of bucks from that. So. He wasn't... Uh, at all a religious guy like but uh, he he knew a lot of liturgies. And Nogi started out going to the Sacred Heart School on North Burger. Avenue, right? Uh, yeah, actually, I started out in St. Teresa's School. Where was that? That was in uh, Toad Hill. Okay. So you transferred over to Sacred Heart? Trans I transferred over into the third grade. Which is where your mom had gone, right? Sacred Heart. My mother had gone there, and uh, actually uh, quite a few of the nuns that taught her also taught me. What are your <laughs> memories of those nuns? Uh, most vivid. Well... The one who made the most impression on me was Sister Regina, who I'd also taught my mother. But uh, my mother told me she was old then. I don't know. She was she was really old, I guess. When, uh, well, just seemed really old. She was a really old-fashioned kind of uh, tough Irish woman. She taught the fourth grade. It's your second year there, okay? And uh, she used to say to me, "Johansen, you tantalizing article, yeah." And things like that. <laughs> she used to tell what us. What were you doing that elicited that? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Just being me, I guess. But, but this is pre-Vatican She used to right? call so. girls, you're a brazen hussy, yeah. And uh, I used to think, oh my God, these people are crazy. But, uh, um, you know, she's, my name was Johansson. So uh, she used to equate me with Martin Luther. <laughs> Luther and George. When she looked at me. <laughs> and uh, it would piss her off to no end, I guess. And uh, she never treated me, really, uh, in a way that I would like to be treated. Let's put it that way. And did it get physical? I don't know if she ever slugged me. She might have. What did your father think about you kids going to Catholic school? Uh... Well, I could, I would sometimes come home, say from the sixth grade, and uh, I'd be really down in the dumps, and he'd say, "What's the matter with you?" And I'd say, "Oh, the nun, I forget her name, Sister Evangeline, I think her name was. She humiliated me in front of the whole class. She's really mean, and she humiliated me." My father said, "That's because you're Catholic." 
But, and you stuck with Catholic school because, I mean, from Sacred Heart, you went to St. Peter's Boys High School, right? I and did, yes, because my brother had gone there. I saw his 58 yearbook from Sacred Heart, and he said that he <laughs> wanted to go into the priesthood. Well, yeah, everybody wants to be a priest at, at that age. But I'm guessing not you. I, mean, given the- I, I entertained it for five minutes, you know. Yeah? Yeah, they used to take us from the school up to Dunwoody. Oh, yes. And you see how the priests live, and they always, but they would always put out like eclairs and things like that. So you would think, oh man, this is great. You get all these pastries. But apparently, they didn't do that every day, just like when they had the visitors, so they could get some fresh recruits, you know? I saw, I think it was a 64-65 yearbook, mm. and there you are in the yearbook, and you're in one of the class pictures, and you have your bow tie and your jacket on, mm. and you're in another photo on the field and track team, mm-hmm. and you've got your buzz cut. Who is that boy inside there? And who, who, you know, what did it feel like to be him in, you know, on the track team with that kind of costume, a certain costume, right? And it sounds like it wasn't very pleasant. Uh, it was not so pleasant. Um, I think I was on the track team because uh, my brother was like a track star. So, you know, the track team was good, and I'll tell you why. Not for the running so much, but uh, we used to go to meets every Saturday. But you would like, you know, be running against these guys from like Boys High and all these other schools. And you, you learn a lot about, you know, just being in the world, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And uh, then after the meet, we would go, you know, to uh, like Times Square or something, you know, the village, you know, places like that. So it was good in a lot of ways. Yeah. Gave me the opportunity to travel. You know, taking the subway and stuff, you know. Reading the graffiti. It just felt like, oh, this is great. Big city, you're talking such trash. Big city, need a bundle of cash. Big city, I've heard you're all flash. But big city, you throw such a bash. And And you think this is 64, 65, and then you switch to 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 the public high school, Port Richmond. Right. So tell me about that switch and why the switch and what happened. Uh, oh, I just you know, I'll just say it was my academic uh, credentials. <laughs> I mean, you know, you have to take Latin, and it's like so you have to learn like a hundred verbs and 
all their forms of each one and what do they call those conjugations? Mm-hmm. And I just said, you know, I have more, I have better things to do with my time. I think uh, I, th- that was, I was at the point then when, you know, I think I had decided I just want to be a beatnik. So. But anyway, I had to kind of endure that for a couple of years, but then I went to Port Richmond High School. And how about the transition, David, to public, the public high school? I know your dad had gone there, Catholic well, school. Well, you know, the first day you have to kind of make friends with like a big, tough guy so nobody messes with you. Who was the big guy? That oh, I, would, I had a variety of them. I knew a lot, I met a lot of people who were, had similar interests, you know, like uh, people who like wanted to read uh, Kerouac and Burroughs and people who were like listening to like, you know, like Charles Lloyd and it was cool. I mean, not the whole school wasn't like that, but there was like, you know, a group of individuals who were kind of like Maynard G. Krebs people. <laughs> and how long did how long did it take you to find them? Like, was it was it a, was it a, a difficult transition? You know, because my oh, mom. Oh no, I was free. You know, you're free. I was free uh... Hey, Maynard, you were loaded with Luke the other day. Yeah. Know what I bought? It wasn't clothes. That's good. Oh, who needs clothes? You do. Look at yourself, Maynard. You're a one-man slum. Details, details. Look, ain't it a gasser? It's great if you like hearing aids. What is it? It's like a radio, a personal portable, they call it. You plug this thing in your ear, and you're the only one who can hear it. I can listen to jazz all through the class, and then no one knows. And what you mentioned your other, older brother's collection, your father's you know, love of classical music and opera. How did you begin to cultivate your own ear, your own taste? Um, you know, when I think back of it, on it, um, there's certain records that I like to play. You know, because we had a record player, and I guess it was in the dining room. And they used to play, like, a lot of show tunes. We had, music was on all the time, though. So they would play, you know, sometimes they would play a show while we were having dinner or something, you know. And uh, they, there was a couple of records from, uh, just for example, there's a couple of records from uh, the Harry Smith collection. I always liked those for some reason. I didn't really even know what they were, you know. And uh, my mother's sister, my Aunt Pat, she would come back from like the Caribbean or something with some kind of like a Caribbean record or a Calypso and give it to us. And I always liked those. So, uh, you know, and I liked my brother's, like some of his doo-wop records and stuff like that, you know. And then my older sister, she was like, loved Bob Dylan from like the get-go. Um, she went to the, see the Beatles at Carnegie Hall. Did she really? Wow. Yeah. So uh, she had that kind of side of it, the FM side covered, you know. So, uh, I, you know, I guess I just took all that stuff in by like osmosis, you know. I didn't really 
particularly have an opinion about it, but uh, I like I like, oh, I like a lot of different kinds of music, you know. So. When I've been down to Memphis, I stomped on the gentleman's hand. Yeah, I've been down to Memphis, I stomped on the gentleman's hand. I can't run right now, baby, trying to get it dolly in my hand. I heard that you would shop a lot at the Dewdale Record Store yeah. on uh, That's right. Port Richmond Avenue. Um, That's right. I think 224. Uh, what was the ritual? You know, did you did you kind of stick in one section, or were you living this in all the sections? It's kind of like this is your life. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. As a matter of fact, I did. Yeah. Um, I used to go in there. And a couple of times I would buy like a 10 pack, you know, of 45s that like didn't make it. And uh, like remainders, like they just would bundle them up and they would put them in like a plastic bag and sell like 10 of them for a buck or something. And you could see what was on either side of it, but you didn't (laughs) really really know it was in the middle. I did that a couple of times. And, you know, it's funny because I still remember some of those songs and... uh, but I think the first 45 I bought, like, uh, was Howlin' Wolf singing, I'm a tail dragger, baby. I wipe out my tracks. I'm a tail dragger. I swipe out my tracks. When I get what I want Well, I don't come sneaking back And uh, I bought that. And then um, I saved up for an LP and I bought a Lightning Hopkins LP. So I, uh, those are, I think, the first two records that I actually bought in a store. So. And do you still have any of those records? No. <laughs> I'm just curious. No. But I, you, don't, I don't have anything. Pickering, why can't a woman be more like a man? I beg your pardon? Yes, why can't a woman be more like a man? Men are so honest, so thoroughly square, eternally noble, historically fair. But when you win, we'll always give your back a pat. But why can't a woman be like that? I've seen you talk about seeing My Fair Lady as a kid. Oh, yeah. And you were on Broadway, I assume you saw it? Or What's that? You saw it on Broadway? I did, yeah. What, what year was that, 56 or 57 56. or something? I did. I went to see, I was six, I guess. And uh, my Aunt Pat took... Me and a couple of my brothers and sisters, maybe my sister and my older brother, to see my fair lady. Rex Harrison, Julian. Rex Harrison made quite an impression on me. Yes, <laughs> he was really great. But I liked, you know, spectacle and shows. Uh, I think the next year we went to see Music Man with Robert Preston. Yeah, wow. He was made quite an impression on me.
Well, either you're closing your eyes to a situation you do not wish to acknowledge, or you are not aware of the caliber of disaster indicated by the presence of a pool table in your community. Well, you got trouble, my friend. Right here, I say trouble right here in River City. Why, sure, I'm a billiard player. Certainly mighty proud to say I'm always mighty proud to say it. I consider that the hours I spend with a cue in my hand are golden. Help you cultivate horse sense and a cool head and a keen eye. Did you ever take and try to give an ironclad leave to yourself from a three-rail billiard shot? But just as I say it takes judgment, brains, and maturity to score in a bop line game, I say that any boo can take and shove a ball in a pocket. And I call that sloth the first big step on the road to the depths of degradation. I say first, medicinal wine from a teaspoon, then beer from a bottle. Did you have, at a young age, yet kind of a an epiphany that this is this is calling to me, or is it just something that you were kind of, you know... Uh, yeah, I entertained playing. the thought of being, you know, Rex Harrison and mm-hmm. Robert Preston. And I, you know, I, I started singing because I would, I, when I would be alone in the boys' bedroom, and I would get to play some of my brother's records without him being around. You know, I would sing along with the records, you know. I used to like the platters. They sing out a very swooping voice. Oh yes, I'm the great pretender. Pretending that I'm doing well. So I would, you know, sing in the mirror and stuff like that when when I was nine, ten, whatever. Uh, I like to sing, and uh, it's funny because uh, most of my brothers and sisters, if not all, were in show business in high school. I mean, they were in like the high school productions of Brigadoon or whatever. <laughs> and uh, I, I was always like, oh, I'm bad into that. I want to like hang out in the corner and smoke cigarettes with my friends, you know. But then uh, I was the only one who actually got into show business, so it's kind of ironic that way. I didn't really, you know, I didn't really uh, go crazy until uh, I went to the Murray the K show. Murray the K was uh, a disc jockey in New York, and uh, he would put on these extravaganzas. So uh, one year he had uh, he had a lot of great acts, but uh, Mitch Ryder just kind of blew my mind. Jenny, take a ride, and sock it to me, baby, and. The guys I used to hang around with, we were were thinking, oh, let's start a band. So uh, 
they're just singing. Well, one guy's like, well, I, I was in a drum and bugle chorus, so I'm going to play drums. Okay, that's good. And I'm just literally thinking about, you know, like the schleppage factor <laughs> of being in a band. And so uh, when they all had picked their instruments, I said, okay, well, I'll be the singer. <laughs> I didn't like push it in there. I just waited till they all... They all had dreams of being a bass player or whatever, you know. And what was in the air when you were 15 to think, uh, uh, guys were thinking about starting a band? I mean, you're 65. Oh, man. It were in my neighborhood? Yeah. You know, there was Wilson Pickett. There was the fantastic Johnny C. Um, we used to play that song. Baby, oh baby, boogaloo down Broadway. And um, there was all the, you know, Kinks and Rolling Stones and all those English bands. Simultaneously, I would uh, strum the guitar and sing like folk music at the uh, Hoot Night at the JCC. So I always had like a kind of like a folky thing going on and a dance band. But uh, there was a radio show. It was on AM, but it would be on almost, I think almost every evening for like an hour or two. And there was a guy who really played great folk songs, like the real deal stuff, you know. In like the early to mid-60s, like I used to listen to almost every night, you know, like... I have a transistor radio under my pillow or something. Yeah, uh, this is WBAI, and uh, this old building is crammed full tonight. Uh, Bob Dylan is here with me, and we're going to be taking some telephone calls on Oxford 78506. This is all you hippie dips. All the hippie dips. From uh, Forest Hills. Here's your chance to call up and talk to Bob Dylan. Do you remember okay. one of the earliest times that you performed locally and started hearing yourself sing and how you were finding your own voice? I remember the first time I, pl I played with a rock and roll band and I think it was like a, the Battle of the Bands or something, one of those events at the school. And uh, I remember the first song we did. I don't remember what the song was, but I had my eyes closed the whole time. And... Uh, you were nervous, in other words, or? I didn't want to be there. And then at the end of the song, I heard everyone cheering, and I opened my eyes, and I thought, oh, they like it, okay. <laughs> I can swing with this. Why didn't you want to be there? Did you just think it was kind of like? I just, because, you know, I didn't really think ahead. Like, all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my God, how did I get here? You know. So and this then, was the, the group of 15-year-old friends who said, let's yeah, form a band. Yeah. You waited for them to pick their instruments, and you said, I'll sing. Yes, we were about 15, 14 maybe. And is this the Vagabond Missionaries? Yeah. What were you proselytizing, and what made you Vagabonds? Vagabondism. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. 
I mean, and was this the same group of friends that would take the ferry across to Brooklyn and ride bikes and come back? And yeah, I think some of them would be involved in that. So there's a vagabond. In the earlier years, yeah. you know. There's a vagabond quality to that, <laughs> I guess yeah. you could say. And, what, yeah. and so, so you form this band with these guys, and you start performing and rehearsing. And what kind of music are you playing? Like, is it just kind of local? We were playing like, uh, you know, Wilson Pickett. Sometimes we, wrote, we would write a song. You know, we started out like, if a song had one chord, that would be really a good one to do. You know, like that. Because then, no, you know, nobody knew how to play, so we were like learning how to, they were learning how to play. I was learning how to sing. That's all. And I'm curious about your voice in particular, because we, to those who know you, know your music, it's a very distinct sort of signature sound. It's kind of got that kind of... Uh, resonance to it and it sounds like the kind of voice you have to grow into right and experience and, and all. well i think and just, you know as a singer i i get better as time goes by if i could be in the crowd at one of these battle of the bands and there you are what would it sound like what would we hear was you know mm-hmm. was it deep like that was your voice always sort of a kind of a deep voice mm, no i don't think so i think you know uh when I was in the Dolls, I had to like really like sing loud, so it probably had an effect on my on my voice. <laughs> How much of it was just about like a kind of a cool social thing to do, or how much was it really a true joy and joy and love of the music itself versus sort of a means to an end? Um, you know, I was fairly certain um, that I was going to like pursue it. You know, so but for so, me, it was. I mean, I'm not saying you know I'm not the most diligent person. Let me tell you that. Okay, uh, if they had like an Olympics. For laziness, you're looking at the bronze right here. So, um, <laughs> but I, I'm trying to. I, yeah. You know, I I didn't give it a lot of thought so much. I just knew, like instinctually, that I was gonna keep doing that. I think I went to see uh, Helen Wolf at Hunter College or something. Wow. I thought this is great. The music sounded so great, and the songs were so great. You know, I don't know. I just always felt like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. You know. So I never the really <laughs> said, well, do I want to do this or do I want to be an astronaut?
One thing I've read about you is that you, you really love Janis Joplin and you followed her. Yeah. You know, I, I recently saw the Monterey uh, Pops concert again on TV, 67, June, you're graduating from high school. Where does she land in your life and what was oh, it about God. her that captivated you? Enough to she's go on the road so to see her. real and great, you know. She's like really good. She wasn't like, you know, full of shit. <laughs> so, I don't know, she's just great. To me, she was like the ultimate real rock star, you know. And what was the first, impre- was it, was the first impression of her sound, or did you see her? Um, I got that first record, the one they made, I guess, in Chicago or something. Where they you were. heard her, yeah. And I loved that record. Then I went to see it, started going to see her. I saw her a lot, you know. And where'd you see her? Like, how far did you go to see her? Where did I see yeah, her? Yeah, and how far would you Anywhere travel? I could. And, you know, because um, there was like a group of people and we like dug Janis Joplin, so we would jump in a car and go somewhere. You know, all around like the tri-state area, I guess. But then, you know, I saw her in San Francisco and wow. a couple other places. But I, had, I was in San Francisco. I didn't go there to see her, you know. She, cause she, she really brought it with her. We didn't meet her. Uh-huh. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't even want to meet her. You know, I just dug. The, I just dug the way she sang. You know. Although one time, I was around that time. I was in the pink teacup on Bleecker Street, and uh, she was in there with some guys in a band. And uh, when she left. I took her, uh, like, Pepsi can or something, you know, whatever the can was. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I used it for an ashtray until it was full. <laughs> but I remember I took it. thinking you enter high school with the Kennedy assassination and you leave with the summer of love, right? And I'm just thinking like... Yeah, 67, a, yeah. yeah. I mean, what a transformation in society, kind of a huge, huge explosion going on and navigating high school in that way. When did you grow your hair out? And when did you kind of uh, change your style? Well, you know, like I, when, I, when I lived at home, I had to always get like some kind of a haircut, I guess. You know. But... Um, you know, after high school, I kind of moved to the East Village, and I, I didn't get a haircut for 11 years. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, my, my hair was kind of long for the time, I guess, you know, for being in a high school in Staten Island, you know. But mm-hmm. I just know you go to the barber like once a month, and he shaves your head. That's about all I remember from it. And they had a lot of great... Uh, comic books and magazines in the barbershop and you could overhear a lot of uh, conversations about, you know, gambling and things like that. So <laughs> I, I didn't care about the haircut because I was getting so much more out of it than just like 
getting my head shaved. Yeah. Next to the barbershop was a, uh, I guess you would call it a, a soda pop stand that uh, very few people frequented, and it was run by a guy named Pappy. The store was called Pappy's. I used to go in there and try to see what I could find, but he would be uh, sitting in the back. There was tables in the back, and he had one of those visors on. He always had a poker game going, and he took bets from, I guess, horse racing or whatever. And uh, he had been there since forever. He would make you a soda. He would deem to get up to the poker table and come and like make you a, an egg cream or something. He had a cigar stub in his mouth and the visor. So I guess, you know, people in the barbershop would run in there and make a bet or something. Mm-hmm. And coming out of high school uh, in those years, were you, were you worried at all that you'd be drafted? Yeah, I didn't want to get drafted. Yeah. I had to do a lot of... Uh, backflips to get out of that, to get out of that mess. How'd you do it? Oh, God, I can't tell you. <laughs> but I was just thinking coming out, you know, not going to college, like that, that route that kind of so many people took, you how know, did you, you know, navigate that? You know, I never registered. Uh, and so then they found me, like the FBI found me. It was a long story. Really? It was, wow. It was... Hair raving. And they found you during the war? It was, it was going on when yeah, they found you? Yeah, it was you? like at the height of it. Yeah. Jeez. Were they come knocking on your, your parents' door? What, what? Uh, not only that, they came to the door where I was living. I wasn't living at home. So. And what did you do? <laughs> Are you <laughs> I David Johansson? I don't know Johansson? if I can put this in the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> But find out what he did put in the podcast in part two of our interview, as his life shifts to the East Village and a rock band that would redefine the sound coming out of the Big Apple. From the heyday of the New York Dolls to the birth of Buster Poindexter, you'll hear how the turning points in David's epic journey as an artist are rooted in his hometown. So think of this as an intermission, and then listen to part two when you're ready to take that ride with us over to the Manhattan side. Thank you for listening, and remember, Everyone's from someplace, and everywhere is somewhere. <laughs>